Listening to the sacristy, a podcast where we seek to learn, discuss, and exalt in the faith delivered once for all to the saints, as it has been passed down in the Anglican tradition. I'm Father David Bumstead, the rector of Emmanuel Episcopal Church in the Audubon Park neighborhood of Orlando, Florida, and I'm joined by my superior co-host. That might be true, maybe. Father Matthew Ainsley, the prospective vicar of All Souls Episcopal Church a church plant in Horizon West Florida, which will have its first service on November 3rd. As we record, that's 13 days from today. (laughs) No one's counting. So I've had a lot of Red Bull (laughs) on the brink of a nervous breakdown. But no, seriously, we're very, very excited. Uh, Yes, your your Red Bull (laughs) consumption has increased, which lets us know that we are real priests with real jobs and real churches. And service times are in uh, our bio. We'd love for you to join us for worship if you're ever in town with us. We have our second guest with us today, and we're very excited to introduce uh, Dr. Hans Borsma. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, Dr. Borsma joins us here in the Diocese of Central Florida as our uh, clergy conference speaker, and we're going to um, spend just a a few minutes with him uh, to, to mine the depths of his scholarship uh, and to uh, to really enjoy, especially his most recent work called Seeing God, which has to do with the beatific vision. Yes, we're very excited that you're with us and that you would spend some time with us, and we're going to have a great time together, I trust. But as we were preparing for this podcast, I realized, surfing the internet, that there are a lot of accomplished and famous people, both in the real world and in the world of literature, named Hans. Okay. <laughs> so I figured we could play a little game. Yeah. I'll be the host, if you will. Sure. And I'm going to read or play... I'm going to give you a tidbit of their work. Okay. Let's put it that way. I'll, I'll keep it vague, just so we can have fun. And you're going to try to name that Hans. Name that Hans. And it's not going to be multiple choice. Okay. It's going to be a tough test. Scary. This is scary. <laughs> All right. Are we ready? Yes. So ready? Yes. As ready as we'll get. Right. (laughs) Here's the first one. Okay. But a mermaid has no tears, and therefore she suffers so much more. Which Hans wrote that, famous Hans. Uh, Hans Christian Andersen? Correct! Oh, okay. All right. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. If he dies, he dies. Okay, uh, I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure that's Hans Gruber. No, that's actually Hans oh, Dolph yes. Lundgren in Rocky Four. Okay. He's an actor. He was a physicist before he got into movies, right? He's from Austria. Yeah, a uh, famously very, very intelligent man who was cast because he just had giant muscles. Yeah, he was born with a perfect brain and a perfect yeah. physique, apparently. Well, you clearly are culturally far more accomplished. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw some uh, your way, Doctor Borsma. The face he showed in Jesus is really his true and single face. That might be Father John Bear. It's got to be a Hans. It's got to be a Hans. Hans. It might be Hans Borsma. It's not. 
It's Hans Kung. Really? Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, and his book on being Christian. Yep. That's very interesting. <laughs> All right. Let, let's switch gears. I'm actually going to play oh some God. music written by Hans, and you're going to have to guess <laughs> the composer. Are we ready for this? Do we know? I have no idea. That was composed by Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer, yeah, the famous... The track is called No Time for Caution from the movie Interstellar. Perhaps okay. you've heard of it, yeah. Father Bumstead. Yeah, of course I have. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, what's the, what, yeah. what, what's the main character that, uh, that you seem to be obsessed with? Uh, Matthew McConaughey. Who is constantly saying... Yeah, that's pretty much all he says. Okay. All right. Next, Hans. You can walk out of here or be carried out. No idea. There's so many Hanses. Think about it. Well, you can walk out of here or be carried out. Man. Oh, the fictional Hans, not a real Hans. Fictional Hans, not a real Hans. And I'm going to say it's probably not Dr. Hans Bursma. No. No, no, it's not it's not this one. The one He did say that to us before we started recording, but it's not him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Give me a clue. It's from a late eighties action movie. Oh, so that's Hans Gruber. That is Hans okay, Gruber, yes. Right. Yeah. Bruce Willis's nemesis in the movie Die Hard. Okay. Maybe, maybe the greatest action hero antagonist I've seen. Just yeah, bril- brilliant. I mean, yeah, if we're talking very specifically late '80s German terrorists, <laughs> okay, played by <laughs> English character actors. Yeah. All right. Here's another. This is a serious one. <laughs> I think you guys can get this. Okay. We no longer dare to believe in beauty, and we make of it a mere appearance, in order the more easily to dispose of it. I'm going to guess Hans Urs von Balthasar. You are correct! Oh, right. oh, that's excellent. Nice! <laughs> that's him. All right. One more. Here we go. Okay. The most important one, I think. Okay. As 13th in line in my own kingdom, I didn't stand a chance. I knew I'd have to marry into the throne somewhere. <laughs> is that Hans from Frozen? It is. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Which I have two small daughters, yeah. and so I've seen Frozen. I don't have as good. Four hundred and seventy-five yeah. times. All right, we're gonna end with. Actually, this is the last one right here. This is a, this is a really good quote. Love this quote. What we need is evangelicals and Catholics who discern the primary demand of our time: a celebration of our heavenly participation <laughs> in the eternal Word of God. Only a heavenly-minded Christian faith will do us any earthly good. Dr. Borsman, any... I can't possibly A shot in the dark, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I have a hot right? <laughs> All right, I'll confess. I'll confess. <laughs> it wasn't me. No, that, that, that is a great quote. quote. That's yeah. from your book, uh, Heavenly Participation, The Weaving of a Sacramental Tapestry, which you, of course, knew that, but for our audience's sake, yes. in case they yeah. want to look that yes. up and read it. Excellent book. That was fun, guys. That was, Did y'all have as much fun as I had? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we've completely embarrassed ourselves in front of our guest, 
Um, we'll do, <laughs> and we have to see him for the next <laughs> yeah, three the next days three and look him in the eye. Oh my gosh! Uh, so we'll go into our calendar days, but before we do that, uh, let's let's pray together. The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, who has knit together thine elect in one communion and fellowship in the mystical body of thy Son, Christ our Lord, give us grace so to follow thy blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living, that we may come to those ineffable joys that thou hast prepared for those who unfeignedly love thee, through the same Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, and glory everlasting. Amen. Amen. As we pray that prayer, that beautiful prayer for all saints, that lets uh, our listeners know that we are preparing for All Saints Tide, uh, and indeed as part of All Saints Tide, that you're the founding of your parish. Which is All Souls Episcopal Church, All Souls Feast Day being on November 2nd. So we're very excited about that, appreciate your prayers, and ex- again, excited about what the Lord's going to do in and through us. Absolutely. Looking at uh, the last week of October, um, October 26th, the church remembers a major feast. We remember St. Simon and St. Jude. Simon, of course, is a member of the Zealot Party, and Jude wrote the letter that we quote, in fact, in our intro um, every, every time we meet. The church has a tradition that they were missionaries and martyrs in Persia. I was actually ordained on a kneeler to the diaconate. I was ordained on a kneeler that uh, had a, a depiction of St. Jude which I thought was hilarious because St. Jude is famously the patron saint of lost causes. <laughs> <laughs> but he brings the heat in his short letter yes, and does. gives us just some great stuff. The faith delivered once for all to the saints. Exactly. Which, as you mentioned, we quote. Yeah. And a fun read uh, because it's a really tiny little letter in the New Testament. October 29th, the church remembers James Hannington, the martyrs of Uganda. Uh, James Hannington died in uh, 1885. He was a missionary bishop, and his, uh, his company were martyrs who preached the gospel in Uganda in the 19th century. On November 1st, uh, a major holy day, All Saints Day, where the church remembers all the saints. Um, we, we delve deeply into the doctrine of the communion of the saints, or perhaps we ought to. We remember those that have come before us. We pray for those in our midst now, and we look forward to what God is doing in those that we welcome into the fold of the church. I think, although Easter is the baptism day, my hot take is I really, really, really love preaching baptisms and having baptisms on All Saints Day. Because to me, it's, it's, uh, it's just so readily accessible to welcome new saints as we celebrate all the saints. Um, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And just showing the, the unity of the church, especially when you bring in All Souls Day, mm-hmm. All Souls Day with the church triumphant, right. the saints, uh, the church expectant, right, the faithful departed, and then us on earth, the church militant, as we are wandering in the wilderness and journeying towards that which the saints in heaven are enjoying already. Yes. November 2nd, of course, being All Souls Day, um, many parishes uh, in our tradition, in the Roman Catholic tradition too, take that day to uh, liturgically remember all faithful departed. Um, I know that's one of my favorite days to celebrate the Mass and to have a, a, a Requiem Eucharist in our courtyard. And I know Father Matt will be working towards that as well at his own parish, which of course is, once again, All, all Souls. souls. <laughs> Church, yeah. And we're, we're very happy to be... Uh, 
thinking in terms of All Saints because our guest is uh, writing, uh, working through the holiness of the church in a very specific and I think very helpful way uh, when we talk about the beatific vision. Because when we think about the saints, we're looking at those who have become what they ought to be in Christ Jesus. Right. Those who have been made perfect, but as we'll talk about a little bit, they haven't exhausted the being of God, that the union of God continues to grow because he's infinite and we're, we're finite. And so a great opportunity to talk with you, Dr. Borsma, about the beatific vision. But we want to start with just perhaps a working definition. Yeah. Because many people, and with my past in the evangelical and Baptist world, I had never even heard this term. I might have heard it, but not really care to investigate sure. it. So what is the beatific vision? Yeah, perhaps the easiest way to explain it is by saying that the term beatific um, comes from two Latin words. The first one, beatus, which means blessed or happy. Mm-hmm. And, and fication comes from a Latin verb meaning to make. So making happy, making blessed. So when you see God, the vision of God um, in the hereafter, is, 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 a, is a beatifying vision. It's a vision that's going to make us happy. It's going to make us joyful because there's no greater end for the human person, the human being, than, than to see God face to face, as St. Paul promises us in 1 Corinthians 13. So when the church talks about the beatific vision, uh, she holds out to, to the faithful and to the, to the world uh, the great hope that the church has, namely to see God forever and ever. And you argue that this should be the primary metaphor, as it were, that we devotionally in the life of church, our, our piety, our, our focus, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, traditionally, <laughs> traditionally, certainly it has been uh, the primary metaphor. Um, the when you primary... say traditionally, um, what do you mean by it? What, whose tradition and how long? Yeah, yeah. Uh, for a very, <laughs> very long time. Um, it's a tradition of the church, mm-hmm. uh, of the great tradition, as I often call it, the great tradition of the church going back to the Middle Ages and prior to that to the church fathers. And really, um, it's central in the scriptures. Sure. Um, of course, one always tends to read the scriptures through whatever cultural lens uh, one has inherited. Um, and and in, because of the situation that we find ourselves in today, we may not always see it as clearly clearly as perhaps we ought. But when you open the scriptures, and certainly when the church fathers and medieval theologians opened up the scriptures, they would see the, the, the vision of God there yeah. uh, all over the place. Mm-hmm. So it's in the scriptures, and it is in the way that the church has read the scriptures through the centuries. Um, constantly that metaphor for, for this union with God that we will experience in the hereafter, the main metaphor has, has, has been the vision of God seeing God face to face. Um, and maybe one more, one more comment on that, sure. um, because I mentioned the scriptures themselves. Um, I, I said 1 Corinthians 13, and it certainly is of course there, where St. Paul in that beautiful chapter on mm-hmm. love says they will see God face to face. But really when he uses that language face to face, he uses language that goes back um, to the Pentateuch. It's there in, in the book of Genesis, it's there in the book of Exodus. Uh, seeing God face to face is a hope that that um, the the patriarchs already had. In fact, Jacob says, "I saw God face to face at Peniel." Right. Um, and and Moses saw the face of God. Right. Mm-hmm. So this sort of language is is 
language that St. Paul picks up from the Old Testament and that the church carries with her through the centuries. So what do you think are some of the reasons that the beatific vision as a focus for the church has sort of fallen by the wayside, as it were, that people don't seem to talk about it or, or have it? You don't hear sermons on it a lot. And many people who have never even heard the term. Right. That's a huge question. It's not an easy one to answer. It has to do with, I think, a major cultural shift that we have gone through in the West, uh, beginning with the late Middle Ages and continuing into the modern period. Um, and it's a shift um, that's often referred to as a shift toward nominalism. Now, very briefly, what I understand by nominalism is that... Um, the things that we see and touch here on earth um, are just those things that we see and touch. There is no greater sacramental depth to those mm. things. Or if you want to, you, you can also put it this way, um, whereas Plato held that there are such things as eternal forms or, or, or universals mm-hmm. um, to which earthly things are somehow connected, mm-hmm. so somehow linked, what we've done in modernity as we've said, those universals, those are just names in Latin, nomina. That's mm-hmm. why the term nominalism. They're just nomina. They're just names. They're not real. They don't exist in reality. Sure. All we have in reality is this worldly things. Well, modernity focuses on these worldly things. And that has slowly but surely, I think, also affected our understanding of the hereafter. In one of your, in one of your books, we actually mentioned... Um, called heavenly participation you refer to that uh, epistemological shift that that or that how we understand the world and how we observe things i believe you talked uh, talk about it in terms of the unraveling of a of a tapestry of how right. we understand a universe right uh, yeah the reason i'm using that metaphor of a tapestry um is that um a tapestry has has um is, is a carefully woven unit Uh, where everything is interconnected, where everything is relational. Um, There's a a beautiful book, it's a difficult one, but it's a a beautiful book by Adrian Pabst, P-A-B-S-T, beautiful book um, called Metaphysics. And there's a subtitle that goes something like The Creation of Hierarchy, I forget the exact title, but it's called Metaphysics. It's a beautiful book. And he emphasizes this relationality. um, And that's why I'm using this, this metaphor of of a tapestry. In a tapestry, you could say heaven and earth, and also earthly things among each other, as a result, are closely interwoven with each other. They're related to each other, they're relational. So you can't separate things out by themselves as, as, as if they were mere atoms right. that were not connected to each other. Right. No, on, on the earlier Christian understanding, and I think on the biblical understanding of things, um, things are closely connected because Together, they participate in greater things, in more real things, in universals, in forms. Mm. And on the Christian understanding, that is to say, they participate in our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you have such a woven tapestry of things, um, you're not going to focus on individual things and try to manipulate them and control them, but you try to see them and treat them also as part and parcel of that one tapestry. Uh, it, well, and, and it's true that, that 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 idea of a tapestry, when we think about being 
uh, participation in, in creation uh, as something that God owns or has made himself through Christ is a really tough sell to a world that is completely convinced of, like you say, simply the, simply the, the, the nominal thing in front of you. So Augustine, the measurable, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. St. Augustine makes a distinction between using and enjoying things. Right. Uti and frui in Latin. Yeah. Using and enjoying. And what he means by that is that this worldly things are merely, merely to be, enjoy, to, to be used for the purpose of greater things. And it's the triune God, says St. Says Augustine, who is to be enjoyed forever and ever. The reason why it is so difficult, I think, for, for you and me today to focus on the beatific vision is that we've confused those two, use and enjoyment. And um, we're focusing, through our turn toward nominalism, we're focusing on these worldly things, on individual objects by themselves, as if they were our final end. Mm. Whereas the earlier tradition of the beatific vision says, now it's God who is our final end. It's right. God who is to be enjoyed forever. Right. Mm. So how do you articulate, in terms of eschatology, the continuity between this life, this age and the age to come, and also the discontinuity? Because we've had this swing back, because you had in the 20th century with dispensationalism and rapture theology, people almost asserting that God is going to take time, space, and matter and throw it in the garbage bin at the eschaton with a sort of Manichaean, dualistic, Gnostic cosmology, essentially. But it seems that in your work, you think that maybe we've swung back, that our eschatology is too this worldly, and perhaps that's the product of post-Enlightenment and modern assumptions not necessarily faithful study of scripture. That was a really long-winded question. I love the way you framed it. <laughs> <laughs> no, the question is magisterial itself. <laughs> yeah, it, is a, it is a good question, and, and I, I really do love the way you framed the question, because what it shows is that the way you get at these kinds of things, such as continuity and discontinuity between now and the hereafter, has everything to do where you find yourself, both culturally and, and church-wise, ecclesially. And uh, I, I have a Reformed background, and so dispensationalism has never been very much in my immediate context. Um, where I have taught for many, many years, Regent College in Vancouver, um, there's quite a few students, actually, uh, who have a dispensational background, and who, when they come to Regent College, are disabused of some of their previous sure. convictions uh, and have to struggle through that. Um, now, I do think that dispensationalism, in terms of its eschatology and in terms of the way in which it looks at this world, is problematic. But at one and the same time, I also think, and that's sort of uh, assumed, I think, in, your, in the way you framed the question already, I also think that perhaps we've overreacted, especially within neo-Calvinism and within neo-evangelicalism, I think we've overreacted. We've so emphasized that God made the world good and therefore it is to be celebrated, that perhaps we have treated this world as good as the, as, which is just to be used according to Augustine. Perhaps we've said, well, we can, we can enjoy it mm-hmm. and we can make it our final end. And if you're gonna do that, 
the way you're going to look at the eschaton is as simply a continuity of what we already have here and now today. So I'm still going to be drinking my favorite beer mm-hmm. in the eschaton. I'm still, I like golf, so I'll be playing golf. Yeah, in you'll the be eschaton. playing golf, or and, and and you might be. I don't know. What I you're don't doing. actually like golf. I was thinking of okay. someone else. <laughs> but you might be listening, <laughs> you might be listening to Bach or whatever in the hereafter. Well, that wouldn't and be so bad. It would not be so bad. But you know, <laughs> when the, when the scripture says we'll be playing harps on the clouds three times in the book of Revelation, right? We'll be playing harps on the clouds. It's, a, it's an image that typically within neo-evangelicalism is derided as, as something. Surely we're not going to be playing harps on the clouds because it's going to be so incredibly boring. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, if we understand that in a, in a straightforward, univocal way as, as this is exactly the way it's going to be, and if we don't understand, in other words, that it's a metaphor, sure. yeah, then it's boring for sure. Yeah. And but, I think people have rejected reacted against that image for good reasons at times because when I hear things like harps and clouds I think of disembodied bliss right, and right. I'm like okay well where's the resurrection yes, right there is going where, to where's be a our bodily life before there is God? going to be a resurrection of the body um, and that's part of that continuity that's mm-hmm. that's implied in your question so there's all sorts of continuity but even with regard to the body St. Gregory of Nyssa has taught me that the way we understand our embodiment um, sometimes needs to be challenged. Sure. In other words, um, while my body today may cause me all sorts of problems, thanks be to God, that is not going to be the case in the eschaton. In the eschaton, yes, we'll be embodied, but St. Gregory puts it this way, and it's maybe a bit provocative because of his Platonic kind of tendencies, but he says, he puts it in language such as it's going to be of lighter fibers. Ah. <laughs> that, that's his language. And what he means by that is it's not going to weigh us down mm-hmm. the way it often weighs us down through the passions and through sin today. It's going to be a body that is fitted for the eschaton. And so also there, there's both continuity and discontinuity, I think. Right. Uh, and I think the basic thing that comes to mind very quickly is well what does do the biblical writers actually mean it when they say a new heavens and a new earth right. i mean yes we're talking about heaven and earth but we're also talking about a reconfiguration of those things um i mean is it new or is it not new right are they is it is it kind of like the old thing or is it is it, it is new? all going to be transfigured right, right? so yeah if, if you and i could understand what transfiguration means today uh, then we could understand properly and fully also the eschaton. Well, we cannot. Right. We don't quite know what the transfiguration was like, and and we're being transfigured. We're being transformed today. When well, that transfiguration is, I think, going to be so pervasive, so incisive. Mm. I'm not quite sure what term to use here. Radical makes me a little bit nervous, but so incisive that that it 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 blows our imagination if we if we could if we could properly think about certainly, it. Certainly, you know, when we read about the transfiguration in the gospels, we see that it completely confused the disciples. Right? <laughs> you know, uh, the whole the, well, look at Peter, how does he do that? Like, oh, oh okay. Uh, yeah. Some of the icons, right? right. The, 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 their sandals fall off their feet. They're on holy ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 
unimaginable for you and me today. And so we need to use a kind of metaphors of a new of, an, of a new heaven and a new earth, or of streets that are of gold. Or, right, right, you know, right. Switching gears a little bit, is the beatific vision static? When we see God, have we arrived, or is there still more? Great question. Um, and I would say it is dynamic. There is still more. Mm-hmm. Um, and the person from whom I have especially learned that is St. Gregory of Nyssa again, uh, the fourth century Cappadocian uh, mystical theologian and also great Trinitarian theologian. Mm-hmm. Uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa uh, uses uh, the language that he takes from Philippians chapter 3 of, of stretching forth. He says with St. Paul, not that I've already attained all this, but I make it my, 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 I try to make it my own and I stretch forth to attain to the end. And this stretching forth, in, in Greek there is a, there's a verb that, that that's, that's, says epikteno, mm-hmm. and the, the, the language that people often use for this continuous stretching forth is epiktasis, therefore, epiktasis. There is a continuous progress, says, uh, says Gregory of Nyssa, already in this life, Already in this life, we're, we're progressing, hopefully, toward the beatific vision. But after we've passed away, after we've transitioned into the into um, the hereafter, and after the resurrection too, on Gregory's understanding, because God is infinite, while you and I are finite, um, we we can and will progress forever more deeply into God's love in Jesus Christ. So there's no end to that. Um, now. In, in fairness to the tradition, I should add that, that this is Gregory of Nyssa, and this is also many of the of the later Greek fathers. Uh, the Western tradition tends to be more, I hate to use the word static, but tends to be more, let's put it, use the term careful, sure. <laughs> tends to be a bit more careful on that score, and says that no, once we attain to the essence of God, um, we've attained to our happiness, our, our, our beatitude, and there's no further stretching forth. Um, the West is a bit more nervous about a continuing desire for more of God in, in the hereafter. Uh, so Thomas Aquinas, especially since the 12th and 13th centuries, the West has insisted that the saints, once they are in the presence of God, have attained to the beatific vision, and quote-unquote, that is that. Mm-hmm. Whereas the East tends to be more, more dynamic on that. And yeah, I'm, I'm more with the East on that point. So there's a sense in which we're made perfect, but then we continue to increase in perfection, if that right. makes sense. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. So that's a huge question. So Gregory talks about the point of perfection. What is perfection? He says, can we ever attain perfection? And, and when, he's, when he's struggling through that question, in several places of his, of, of, his, of his works, he says, to be perfect is never to stop striving for virtue. It is never mm-hmm. to stop striving for perfe- perfection. What is perfection? Well, for St. Gregory, it is Jesus Christ himself. And you and I strive to participate ever more deeply in Jesus Christ. That is for him perfection. You could compare it, and, and often within the Platonic tradition, within the Christian Platonist tradition, people do that. You, you could compare it to a cup that's full of water, it's filled to the top, and in that sense, you could say it's perfect. But if now you imagine that cup be expanding 
so that it gets bigger and bigger. And you keep pouring water into it. And it, it keeps being filled to the very top. Well, that is the, that is the picture for our eternal growth, for our, our epictasis into the life of God for Gregor of Nyssa. Uh, there's an ever-expanding perfection, but, but the cup is full all the time. Right. Hmm. So there is perfection, and yet there is ever more. Obviously, we're dealing with paradox here. Right, yeah. But that's, right. that's a, a, a picture that he uses to so illustrate. The, the growth of our capacity to be full, and while at the same time mm-hmm. becoming more, like becoming yeah. full. So in terms of beatific vision, um, we're seeing through a glass darkly now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more we see of God, um, the more this vision of God transforms us, you could say. The more our cup expands, and the more God enables us to see Him better. Um, so the more you see of God, the more God shines His face on you. The more you see of God, the more He shines His face on you. The question that keeps coming to mind as you describe that process is a is a is a you know a, a question of piety. You know right. uh, that uh, how how would somebody like Gregor of Nyssa have described that process by which a human being living in communion with Jesus as his disciple sacramentally connected to God and all of those things attain trying trying in in this life to attain after the beatific vision what does that look like for somebody like Nyssa um for Gregory of Nyssa the language of virtue or of skill is absolutely central to such a degree that you and I, perhaps at times when we read Gregory, might get a little nervous <laughs> and think, oh wow, is, is he a moralist or what? <laughs> um, and, and there are elements sometimes where even I get a little, a little queasy, yeah. you know? But, but you have to remember two things. One is when he uses the language of, of, of virtue, um, in, in Greek, the word virtue is, is the word skill. Mm. And he wants us to be skilled Christians. This is not about certain things you may do, other things you may not do. It's not about filling in the blanks or, or, or about certain, certain morals that, that are very clearly prescribed. That's not what it's about for him, first and foremost. He, he's what you could say, what you could call a virtue theologian. Sure. You know, what he's interested in is our characters and our habits to be, sh- to be shaped in a certain way um, so that we become skilled killed at Christian living. That's what it's for for him. The Greek term arete means, means virtue, but it also means skill, mm-hmm. one and the same thing. And the second thing is that for him, virtue is not something that we just conjure up by ourselves. It's mm-hmm. not just, it's not a Pelagian kind of thing. It's not something that you can do in your own strength. It's always a participation in Christ. So that when, for example, if you have a really a really wise person. For Gregory, it's not that this person has become wise by really working at it hard, by on on his own accord. No, for Gregory, it's a matter of this person has learned from Jesus Christ. Mm. This person has learned to participate in Christ. In fact, this person's wisdom is is in a small way a sharing in the very wisdom that is Jesus Christ. Um, so everything that we do good, so to speak, all our moral progress is, is always only a small sharing in the life of God. 
It's part of our deification. Mm-hmm. It's part of our growing into the life of God. How does the cross come into the beatific vision? This past summer, I had the opportunity to class on origin with uh, Father Bear, and he made this statement that the cross is the apocalypse, the crucified and risen one. And of course, when we hear the word apocalypse, we immediately think of Zombie Land Two <laughs> in theaters now. <laughs> Not a sponsor. <laughs> Not a sponsor, but you can sponsor us if you want. <laughs> or we think of this sort of rapture theology left behind, right. horrible things. But apocalypse means unveiling, and so God and man, what we should be, the archetypal human being, are unveiled in Christ. So, what's the relationship, or maybe a more provocative way? Is the apocalyptic vision, as I've defined it, the the beatific vision? How are they related? Yeah. So one way uh, to talk about the beatific vision, about seeing God in the hereafter, is that it it is the climax of God unveiling Himself throughout history. Um, that's not something that only happens on the cross. It happens in some sense supremely there, but it's it's something that happens throughout history. Um, the ancient theophanies, appearings of God. So when God comes to Moses at the burning bush, it's a theophany, right? It's an appearing of God. Um, there are all these theophanies throughout the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, when God gives us the scriptures, I mean, in the scriptures, he unveils himself to us, right? He reveals himself. Apocalypsis, it's, it's an apocalypse. Um, whenever God steps down into this world, it's an apocalypse, it's an unveiling. And of course, um, only in the Incarnation, St. Augustine makes this point in, in, in his book on the Trinity, only in the Incarnation do we have the kind of theophany where God assumes flesh, where God actually humbles himself in human flesh by becoming, by assuming human flesh. And it's this humility for St. Augustine that's why St. Augustine, over again, the pride of the fall so mm-hmm. emphasizes mm. the humility of the Incarnation. Right. So it's in Christ and in the human life lived by Christ, which leads inevitably to the cross, that we see who God is. Actually, Herbert, Herbert McCabe, uh, 20th century Dominican theologian, talks about this, this life lived by Jesus here on earth um, is, 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 a, is a sacrament. Is, is that's his, his terminology. It's a sacrament of who God himself is. John Beer actually pointed out that quotation from, from Herbert McCabe once to me. It's an unveiling. Um, it's not the reality itself. It's, it's, it's only a sacrament. But the sacrament, the human life of Jesus, truly, and according to Hebrews 1 verse 1 and 2, most fully mm-hmm. <laughs> unveils who God is. So... There's reason why um, throughout the Christian tradition it is the incarnation, the life of Jesus, and especially also the cross that have been the focal points of Christian meditation and Christian contemplation. Hmm. Because that's where we see most fully God unveiling himself. That's, that's the theophany for, for, for Christian believers. Yeah, so you see that in the monastic tradition that they're getting this foretaste of the beatific vision. They're, they're often focused on the cross and passion. Another way is reflecting on perhaps 
through Lectio Divina, mm-hmm. reflecting on the scriptures. Because when we think about perfection and coming to our perfection, I thought of, in large part because I preached about it yesterday, <laughs> 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 talks about all scriptures right. given by inspiration of God. Um, in verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect. Right. And so how does scripture help us to grow into seeing God and getting that foretaste? Yeah, I love that question. Thank you for that. Um, and, and what your question shows, I think, is that there's a dynamic to scripture reading. There's a mm-hmm. purpose to scripture reading. It, it goes somewhere. The perfection that we talked about earlier in our conversation is the very same perfection, I think, that St. Paul talks about in, in, this, in, this, in his letter here to, to Timothy. Um, when we interpret the Bible, we're always interpreting it with a certain end, with a certain telos, a certain purpose. And, and that purpose is our perfection. Or, uh, to use your language of Lexio Divina, of contemplative reading, the purpose is contemplation. It's the mm-hmm. contemplation of God. Um, contemplation of God here on earth through spiritual reading, through Lectio Divina, is a foretaste of beatific vision. It's like the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, it is. It is. We're already experiencing something of the resurrection life. Mm, right. We're, we're we're seeing something of how God unveils Himself in the Scriptures. So reading the Bible isn't a matter of simply turning back and asking the question, well, what did the author mean back then? No, it's a matter of looking forward primarily, I think, namely to contemplate God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Awesome. Oh, yeah, that's great. (laughs) Real quick before we transition to the sermon first pass, can you just say a word or two about the irony of seeing God? We talk about seeing God, of course. Yeah. He's the invisible God, so we can't see him with our physical eyes. But also, I mean, if our life is seeking the Lord, the Bible says no one can see God and live, yet he commands us to seek him. And if we find him, we'll die. But we might actually truly live by seeing him. All these ironies in Scripture. Yeah, it's it's, it's a tricky thing, isn't it? And and that's also why in Scripture, whenever people do see God... Uh, think, for example, of, of, of Samson's uh, parents. Um, when, when people do see God, they're astounded that they continue to live, that, right. they, didn't, <laughs> that they didn't fall down dead. Well, just in the, the, we, we were talking about Scripture that we preached on. You know, one of the surprising things about uh, Jacob and the figure at, at, uh, at Penuel is, is that he, yeah, he walks away with a limp. But Scripture points out mm-hmm. he was alive. Exactly. You know, he didn't exactly. die. Exactly. Yeah. There are different ways in which theologians have, have, have dealt with this difficult question. And um, perhaps the best way to respond to the question is by saying, when we see God, we never see, quote-unquote, all there is to see of God. We see something of God. If we were to see God um, in the fullness of who He is, it would be, the very thought is preposterous. In fact, the very thought is blasphemous, I think. Because what it would mean is that we ourselves are God in the sense that God is God. We would have, you could also say, we would have God in our back pocket. Yeah. So to to the notion that we would be on the same level as God is is, uh, for finite human beings is is, is just ridiculous. And so um, God 
God carefully lifts something of the veil very carefully so as not to kill us. Mm-hmm. That's all he does for us, out of pity with us. Yeah, so it's a function of our limit, one, our limitation, because we cannot comprehend God. We are, we are finite, and it's inescapably right. true that we cannot see him for all he is. But it's what, which is a good point and, and you know, worthy of our consideration on one level. But you're also pointing out that God loves us and is merciful us and when, to us. And when he seeks to unveil himself, doesn't seek to vaporize us, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is very kind of him. And, and the other beautiful yeah. side of that is when he does unveil himself somewhat, he also, in that very unveiling, um, makes us strong enough to be able to bear the light. Think of Dante's uh, Paradiso, right? Now, at several points in the Paradiso, there is this notion of um, Dante being prepared to be able to see. Yeah, right? he, yeah. he needs his eyes healed. Right. And so God heals us. God transfigures us, heals us, heals our eyes um, so that we can see something of him. So in that very merciful showing something of, of, of himself to us, he, he also makes us stronger. He also heals us and makes us more like himself. Um, so there, there is a beautiful element in it that not only does he not kill us, but actually, in that in that very careful lifting of the veil, he heals us slowly but surely. I think. So, drawing it back to Nyssa, that that work of Christian virtue, that uh, prepar- is is preparation, consistent preparation, uh, participating in God's grace, so that once again we can be filled up enough to appreciate and enjoy God in as much as He has been revealed to us in Scripture in the cross, the incarnation, um, our salvation, and all of the events therein. Um, well, that's remarkable. I that's feel like great. there's a sequel to this podcast coming. <laughs> <laughs> I could go another two hours, but yeah. we've got to let our <laughs> guest gonna... <laughs> get some rest before he teaches us all yes, week. That's right. But I'm very, very excited for our time together the rest of this week. It's going to be awesome. But transitioning, we're going to be looking at... For our sermon first pass, we're going to be looking at All Saints Day. All Saints Tide, really. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, All Saints. Uh, for, uh, for many of us, we will uh, celebrate a mass or, or a series of masses on All Saints Day on November 1st. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of us will, like I said in the beginning of this cast, we um, will celebrate something for All Souls Day on the 2nd. Uh, and many of us will indeed observe All Saints Day on the Sunday following, mm-hmm. uh, on the 3rd. And in anticipation of that, we want to use the scriptures proper to that day. Yeah, we have Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, and then 15 through 18. Psalm 149. Then the epistle is Ephesians 1, 11 through 23. And then the gospel is Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 31. And you can find those readings on lectionarypage.net. Or in your prayer book. So guys, what jumps off the page, and with something like All Saints Day, sometimes you preach thematically and yeah. you don't necessarily stick to the lectionary. Yeah, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I would probably touch on some some theme in the scripture, but uh, for me, and I know for Father Ainsley, um, you know, I think both of our parishes will, will celebrate baptisms. Uh, so as I mentioned in the beginning, um, you know we'll want to we'll want to take some of these themes from Scripture and draw them into a baptismal homily or sermon uh, that 
kind of brings out a theme of well, what what are we drawing people into? What what is what what is this life in Christ actually like? What does God promise to us? Uh, what is um, what are we meant to do in response? Um, so I, you know one of the one of the promises that you see right at the end of this Daniel passage: the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. Um, you know the 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 inheritance of the kingdom. Um, that, that God promises to his holy ones and you know we as the church plug ourselves into that that word the words holy ones in in this Daniel passage of course um, the chosen ones of God who you know we don't just dwell in this kingdom to, to sit and enjoy it although we we can and should at least that I suppose but our the kingdom that we're that we're guaranteed is a kingdom that is ever expanding through the ministry of the gospel and the spread of the, the word of God and of, of, of Jesus Christ. So I, I see this as both a guarantee of, of enjoyment, like uh, Dr. Burisma says, and a guarantee of vocation uh, to continue the work that God has given us. Yeah. Or not. Just on the score, <laughs> just on the score, Father David's point here about inheritance, um, as I read through these passages, uh, that's perhaps the key element that jumps out. Um, possessing the kingdom forever and ever but the holy ones it says in Daniel 7 right at the very end of, of the passage that we read verse 18 but the holy ones of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever that's the inheritance and of course in the, in the uh, epistle reading St. Paul's uh, letter to the Ephesians um, that mm-hmm. term inheritance comes up I think three times if I put yeah. it correctly in Christ we have obtained an inheritance so it's a very Christological thing mm-hmm. this possession is a possession that we have in Christ. It's an inheritance that we have in Christ. That is our beatitude. And so very beautifully, again, you know, the church has Luke 6 with it, the beatitudes. This is this is the happiness, the beatitude that we mm. are to look forward to, this inheritance. Mm. Um, so they're, they're wonderfully structured. And all of that, I think, um, leads to praise. Yeah. Uh, the theme of praise like, yeah. com- comes up in the Psalm, uh, Psalm 149 comes up in Ephesians 1 that we might live to the praise of his glory several times there well even the way that uh, the, the, he the, even the way that, that this, this is the conclusion of this passage from Ephesians works right it, it is seep, it is uh, steeped in, in praise uh, God put his this power to work in Christ and then there's this doxological tense to it right when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power dominion above every name his name not only in this age but in the age to come that 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 tenor of praise is, is there even as it's intensely theological uh, and pastoral in a letter but you you can't get that without praise mm-hmm. you can't get that that direction uh, just on a kind of sacramental note as you know we're talking about baptism but um, here in Ephesians, we see this kind of um, a mark of chrism, right? Um, in him, you also you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him and were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. And in, in, in the church, we make that, that text come alive and explicit in the rite of baptism, wherein we say to the, the, to the, to the, um, to the candidate, to the baptized, that you are sealed in the, in the Holy Spirit and mm-hmm. marked as Christ's own forever. Which, mm-hmm. by the way, if you're ever at my church for a baptism, you will find that that's where I'm going to cry. If I'm going to cry anywhere mm-hmm. in the service, it's going to be sure. there at that really incredible moment of chrismation, which mm-hmm. Paul is directing uh, our, 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 hearts and our, our hearts and our minds to. 
um, there is there is this um, shadow side which at the same time is an encouragement in, in, in several of these passages right the the the, um, the saints the holy ones of the most high in Daniel 7 are contrasted with the four beasts sure and the four beasts in Daniel I think are the nations they are the the, the ones who are opposed to the people of God so they are the enemy as it were so there is the, the in, in, you could put it in this way uh, when you compare it to Luke chapter 6 which has both blessings and woes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there is the woes for the nations and there's the blessings for the saints right. for the people of God right um, the same thing comes up also in Psalm 149 um, which is, which is a, the entire psalm is a word of praise the Lord takes pleasure in his people, let the praises of God be in their throat. But then it says in verse 6, and that's where the psalm makes a, makes a huge turn, and a two-edged sword in their hand. And then the rest of that psalm talks about vengeance on the nations, yeah. which, you know, evil is going to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Evil is not going to have the last word. Right. Um, so that shadow side is to mm. the saints an encouragement because God is going to redeem us from everything that stands against God's kingdom. And you see that in the gospel and to connect it with baptism, the the shape of kingdom life, this the Sermon on the Plain. You know, Jesus mm-hmm. had to preach his sermons more than once. He didn't have a podcast. He couldn't just <laughs> go to town and say, I've published it on this website. Here the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. And it's this giving of the new law, but it's also this announcement that this blessing, the blessing of God is coming through his Messiah, his son, uh, Jesus Christ. And again, the shape of kingdom life. But there's this dark side that when you live in the age to come now and you have that foretaste, there might be people that hate you and exclude you and revile you. Yeah. And remember that you're blessed because you're 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 seeing God and and following him and in his son Jesus Christ I'm reminded of my my favorite hymn which is actually an advent hymn uh, lo he comes with clouds descending and one of the verses deeply wailing is the is the mm-hmm. line that's yeah, repeated yeah. and the ones that are deeply wailing are those who have stood against the um, the purposes of the crucified Messiah seeking to redeem and save the world and those that nailed him to the cross are the ones who will at the end of all things deeply wail at their at their own mistake uh, being in the way of of this fountain of goodness seeking to restore the world as it ought to have been so um, yeah that's the inheritance of the saints right all right <laughs> thank you yeah it's great uh, thank you Dr. Burzma so much for being with us uh, you've given us so much to think about to pray through um, uh, and we hope that as always it's an edification and an encouragement to our listeners Dr. Burzma is there anything that you are particularly excited about what are some books that uh, some of our listeners might be interested in, in reading of yours where do you work well, I'm, I'm not most excited about the books I've written. <laughs> we are. We think they're great. <laughs> um, I'm, for one, I'm very, very excited to be with you both just in this podcast and also for the rest of these, these couple of days here. Thank you. Um, I think it'll be, uh, be a wonderful time together. I really look forward to getting to know uh, some of your colleagues. Uh, some it's a of the good group. You'll here. very much enjoy so them. I'm, I'm looking yeah. forward to that and I'm excited about that. Um, this past summer, um, I transitioned. Uh, I, had, I have been teaching for the past 14 years at Regent College in Vancouver, and um, I have a new position at Neshota House. 
and in terms of excitement uh, things to look forward to uh, I am really grateful uh, for this new position that I have at Nashota House and I'm very excited to be part of the house and to be joining my colleagues and uh, students there um, the Shota House, I think, uh, especially with the new leadership of Gary Anderson, is onto uh, onto a new chapter, and I'm really grateful for that and and, and thankful to be a part of that. Um, and I would be remiss if I wouldn't say that I'm excited that we have ten grandchildren. Yeah, and, yeah that's awesome. And and, and that's uh, awesome. And uh, <laughs> my wife, who just retired, is very excited yeah. to visiting them more. <laughs> that's that's so fun. That's so yeah. cool. We got to spend some time with Dr. Borzma last uh, last evening as we as we uh, picked him up from the airport, and he shared with us his family life, and it, it's it's just sort of beautiful and wonderful, and and uh, his family sounds like just fascinating people, <laughs> um, and so you know it, it's. Very impressive group Disa- of people, yes. to say the least. Disappointingly unlikely that we'll meet most of them, but um, they, they, uh, his family are, are, are truly remarkable. Uh, well, since he's too humble to, uh, to name his book, I will do it for him. We'll plug uh, it. Buy yeah. it. Uh, it's, a, it's a great, great book, and Dr. Burzma is an excellent, excellent writer, and not just because he's standing in front of me. I've been reading his books for a number of years now, but um, a lot of theology that we, that we cover, we talk about, will, be, um, will seem inaccessible um, to the regular uh, reader. Um, I don't think that's the case of Dr. Burzma's work. I find, I find that the way that he writes is very winsome, um, very compelling, forceful in other places, pastoral in others. Uh, his most recent work is, is Seeing God, the Beatific Vision in Christian Tradition. Uh, he's also written uh, many other books. Um, one, another one that we mentioned was, is called Heavenly Participation. It's a s- shorter monograph, uh, but an excellent work. Thank you again for that. And what was the name of your atonement book? Uh, is it Violence, Violence Hospitality, and the Cross? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Violence, Hospitality, and the Cross is an excellent work uh, on the atonement and metaphors there and it's uh, it's a fantastic and i think very helpful book for those out there seeking uh, a greater a deeper uh, theological vision of what god has what god has done for us in jesus christ on the cross so those are three but there's way more um and i hope that you as listeners enjoy them as we have well brothers let us close out in prayer let us pray O God, the maker and redeemer of all believers, grant to the faithful departed the unsearchable benefits of the passion of thy Son, that on the day of his appearing they may be manifested as thy children. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. It was Thanks great again. with you. It was Thank good. You very much. Uh, see you in like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Blessings. <laughs>